Hi everyone. Welcome to Third Spacing, the podcast, where we explore important issues on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. I'm your host, Bamsi. Today, I'll be interviewing Professor Angie Chu, who has created a mark in the mental health landscape in Singapore. She founded the Brahm Center, which is a charity that aims to promote happier and healthier living. And she was also titled the Singaporean of the Year 2019. In this episode, we break down the term mindfulness and discuss the benefits of meditation. This is our conversation. Thank you so much for being here with us, Angie. It's wonderful finally meeting you. Apart from the awards and achievements, I want to know who you are truly and what has led you to come to this point. I'm saying nice meeting you too. Well, I guess uh, in some strange way, because I suffered from anxiety and depression, that had led me to uh, found a charity called Brahm Centre, which at that time, uh, we weren't even supposed to tell people that we're a mental health centre because uh, there was too much stigma around it. But today, I think that stigma has uh, been eroded, which is a fantastic thing that we can actually talk about mental health in a much more open way. And so uh, I'm an ex- accidental um Social entrepreneur, I guess, uh, founding a charity that specializes in mental health. And I have started uh, working full-time there in 2015, and it wasn't part of the plan. I had my own career then, and I was earning $20,000 a month. So I never dreamt that I would be going to the social service sector and taking a 60% pay cut. But here I am, seven years later, I'm still uh, in the social service sector and loving it. And although I earn much less, but I'm a lot happier because the work that I do is so much more meaningful. Oh, that's wonderful. May I know from your perspective, what is the mental health landscape in Singapore right now? Would you say it has progressed a lot and what is the future of it? We have certainly progressed a lot in the mental health space. And I'm actually delighted to even mention it here that we have been appointed to support the 4,500 homo doors in Singapore and they stand for... Uh, house officers, medical officers, dental officers, and residents um, to uh, ensure that the medical uh, community is well supported. And um, so there's a a recognition, in fact, that mental health is as important, if not more important than physical health, because there is a strong connection between mental well-being and physical well-being. There is a saying that uh, without mental health, there is no health. Yeah, that's true. But what would you say about the future of mental health? Do you think there are a few obstacles we have to look out for or the direction that we are heading towards has to be slightly amended? Ministry of Health just launched a campaign called Healthier SG. And I had brought up the question, how about happier and healthier SG? Because our physical health is going to decline over time. And Mm. that's why this body dies, because we all have an expiry date. But we don't have to die unhappily. We can still die happy. And our mental health continues to hold up despite our body disintegrating. For the sake of our audience, can we clarify the difference between the mind and the brain? Wow, that's a really deep question. The brain is a vehicle uh, for the body being uh, functional and uh, for our brain to be able to make sense of what is actually going on. There's a component of the mind that really is the life force of our being. And 
It is the mind that comes with a set of personality. It's not the brain. And it's how our mind is conditioned that makes each one of us different. So there is a difference between the mind and the brain because how the mind interprets something, how the mind catastrophizes, or how the mind is able to just see things as they are has an effect on the physiology of the brain. And what happens in the brain then has an effect on the rest of the body. So that's the mind versus the brain. What is mindfulness and why should people practice it in the first place? Mindfulness is equivalent to awareness. We all have a set of habits. Some are really good habits that we have, but some habits are not great. And these are the habits that lead us to have dysfunctional relationships or um, mental habits that cause us to um, not function well in certain stressful situations. So mindfulness creates the awareness for us to be able to shift and cultivate new habits. One may ask, but why do we want to practice mindfulness? What is it for? The practice of mindfulness is to help us to always have a better response. Because when the mind is calm and has clarity, we can always come up with a better response instead of being reactive. That's powerful. So personally, I started my meditation journey and I think I relate to whatever you said just now. So I posted a lot about it on social media and I was always asked two questions. Number one, is it religious in nature? So I told them no. While it plays a salient role in many religions, the act of meditating doesn't have to be religious at all. The second question they asked is, what is the science behind it? And this question is more difficult for me, but I want to understand from more from you whether there's scientific evidence behind mindfulness and where should they look for? Meditation or mindfulness practice are interchangeable terms. And these are practices to help us train the mind to be present. Because so often our mind is either in the past or the future. According to a Harvard research by uh, Killingsworth, involving 2,250 participants, they discovered that 47% of the time our mind is wandering. And people's, uh, people whose minds wander more tend to be more unhappy. Because notice the next time when your mind wanders off. Does it wander into a good place where you feel that, yeah, you know, life's going to be great? Or you go, oh, what's going to happen? What if something goes wrong? Or thinking about the past on something that you did that you feel regretful about. Or do you think about, oh, I'm so proud of myself for having achieved the following things. So often the mind gravitates towards what's negative because it is the inclination of the mind to try to help us to survive. So this inclination is what causes the mind to incline towards negative. So in the mindfulness practice, it helps us to have the awareness to bring the mind back to the present. And it also helps our mind to reframe and not catastrophize. So is this religious? I think you know the answer. Because focusing on our breath, breathing is in everybody. Where we choose to focus our mind is what helps us to taste peace and happiness or it causes us to feel negatively about life. So it's not religious, is it? Yeah, that's definitely <laughs> true. <laughs> What's the science behind it? 
Well, Harvard and many other universities have done a lot of research on uh, neuroplasticity. So what meditation does, it enhances the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And this thickening of the prefrontal cortex uh, actually enhances the executive function, the uh, fluid intelligence, as well as the working memory. It also enhances the part of the brain called the insula that helps us to be more aware of our heart racing, our rapid breathing, because when we have this awareness, then we can actually do the intervention to calm ourselves down so that we're not caught up in this emotional loop that often causes to go into fight and flight um, response. And it also helps to reduce the size of the amygdala, which is the old brain that um, results in our body pumping more adrenaline because it's sending a message to the hypothalamus that triggers the adrenal glands to pump more adrenaline. And uh, this fight and flight response as a result of that causes us to be uh, defensive, um, to have angry emotions, and to damage our relationships. So the adrenaline pumping in our body actually causes our heart to race, our breathing to be more rapid, the tension in our muscles. And we're not talking about just episodal stress. A lot of people are suffering from chronic stress because the mind is worrying. And when the mind is worrying, the body doesn't know that it is not real. It's imagination that things are going wrong. There's a strong association being between tranquility and being passive, right? The idea that whatever happens, you should let it go and not let it affect you, your, don't affect your internal state. So does that result in people being more passive and less confrontational? I don't think any of my staff would consider me to be uh, passive. Uh, in fact, I'm doing a lot of things that are proactive. It's about where you want to direct your energy. It's not about being tranquil that you do nothing. It's to be able to bring back that tranquil state when you know your mind is seized by emotion, which means the mind is perceiving threats. But most of the threats are imagined because our mind tends to catastrophize. So when we are aware of that, we bring it back into the present moment and let go of those catastrophizing thoughts is what helps us to bring ourselves back into a more peaceful state where our mind is calm, it has clarity, and it can then choose us to focus on what is more beneficial, what is more positive, and therefore the better course of the next action. I feel our generation, there are many of us who experience this phenomenon where we spend hours scrolling through TikTok or Instagram mindlessly, just passively consuming content. Don't get me wrong, I love these apps and they're a powerful me medium for brilliant content. But without self-control, we feel like we're rotting inside while the little dopamine hits from scrolling um, feeds our neural circuitry for that matter. So how can we break out of that and does being mindful help in this case? When you're mindful, you are more self-aware. So it's just like if you're eating your favorite foods, the first mouthful is like heavenly. The second one is still pleasurable. But after a few more mouthfuls, you're like, it doesn't give you that same amount of pleasure anymore. In economics, it's called the law of diminishing returns. So same with uh, social media, it's feeding your mind as opposed to the food that's feeding your body. You may find it very uh, pleasurable at the start, but you know it 
after some time, uh, your mind no longer has that same um, dopamine effect or your brain doesn't have that same dopamine effect. And you find that, boy, you know, this is, this is actually wearing me down. So when you have the awareness, is not to let your um, time be spent to, to that extent, that you have the awareness to say, okay, that's enough for now. So shouldn't we teach mindfulness in schools from an early age? So like regular 10-minute guided meditations in the morning. So would the Ministry of Education be open to that? And what are the steps we need to get there? We have been teaching mindfulness to quite a few teachers, uh, including some of the schools have approached us directly for their teachers to learn mindfulness. And in some cases, even in assemblies, they have invited me to lead mindfulness uh, for the students. So certainly there is an interest uh, in the schools for mindfulness and uh, at the upcoming Asia-Pacific Mindfulness Conference uh, workshops, there is a whole segment on mindfulness uh, in education. It would be great for mindfulness to be introduced in schools as it would help the students to learn how to manage their anxiety more effectively as well as to enjoy school more. It has to start with the teachers. The teachers need to have a sense of uh, calmness and uh, tranquility, especially in the midst of the students misbehaving on how they're going to be able to bring that uh, sense of control, composure. Um, and that is how the students are going to learn the best way, by role modeling, seeing how mindfulness works for the teachers. And so when the teacher actually shares it with the students, the students are convinced it works. Rather than you have a screaming teacher in the front and then the teacher says, let's do mindfulness. <laughs> That's not very convincing, is it? Yeah. So would you say the solution will be generational because it will be hard to expect teachers across the country to suddenly implement mindfulness for themselves and teach mindfulness for that matter. So we can be more hopeful for perhaps when my generation becomes teachers and eventually teach mindfulness because they have adopted mindfulness for their own practice. I'm more optimistic than that because uh, we have conducted mindfulness for, to more than um, 10,000 people, probably getting close to 15 or more. And um, so many schools have actually uh, come forward to learn mindfulness and teachers are starting to incorporate into their lives because they need it for not just being in school teaching, but also in their personal life because their lives can also be very stressful with spouse, with parents, with kids. So I would be more optimistic to say that it is moving in that direction of uh, incorporating mindfulness into their lives. And Academy of uh, Singapore Teachers have in fact offered um, to pay for their teachers to attend the mindfulness retreat as well as um, the workshops at the Asia-Pacific Mindfulness Conference. So that is saying something. Mm, definitely. I was trying to figure out why 2020 was a challenging year for many across the globe. So it goes without saying the financial burden, the fear of job security, and many other factors. But I want to go beyond that, right? So what about the pandemic makes it so mentally challenging? Was it the isolation? Was it the detachment from people? Or was it the idea that you can't autopilot anymore because a lot of things in our lives changed? So what was challenging about 2020? What is challenging is the mental resistance to change. 
the unwillingness to accept that this is what it is now. So one of the foundational attitudes of mindfulness is acceptance. When we can accept that COVID-19 is here, there is a pandemic, once we accept, we let go of that resistance, we're able to adapt or we focus on adapting. Without the mental resistance, nothing is a struggle. We go with the flow. So Darwin's theory of survival is not the fittest, but those who can adapt. And that's what mental resilience is all about, to be able to accept and adapt. When I first started out, like I found the space of mindfulness really challenging to navigate. So this was just one and a half years ago when I initially started. So I had a bunch of questions. What is meditation? How do I sit? Where do I sit? How do I breathe? What advice would you give to these people who intend to start meditating but aren't sure how to? Practicing meditation is only one part of mindfulness. Uh, incorporating the uh, foundational attitudes of mindfulness is also key for us to um, develop kindness, compassion, um, being able to accept what we can't change and letting go of what has already happened for us to be grateful. So these are foundational attitudes that are key for our mindfulness journey. So meditating is only one component. For meditation, I would um, encourage you to use an app like Calm or Headspace, or uh, use our free audio uh, tracks that are available on our Brahm Center uh, website or our YouTube channel, and allow yourself to experience what it's like to be able to calm the mind and relax the body. It's interesting that you brought up Calm and Headspace. I want to know your thoughts on monetizing mindfulness. And because Calm and Headspace, they charge about like $70 per year, and not everyone can afford that, right? So I want to know your perspective because you, are, as Brahm Center, put up free tracks online. So would you say mindfulness should be a practice that should be free for all? Or is it more something that it can be monetized and what, it, what Headspace and Calm is doing is on the right track? When someone pays for an app, perhaps they are more committed to using it than if they got it for free. Um, having said that, they do have a team of uh, incredibly artistic, creative people who have made mindfulness practices uh, very uh, interesting and enjoyable. So, you know, people have to uh, live and um, to be able to earn a decent income. So I would say that monetizing is not a bad thing if it's not overcharging. But I do recall having written to uh, some of these app organizations and they do offer like a free one-year license if you're a non-profit. Mm -hmm. So I would even urge you to write to them and say, hey, we're a group of medical students. Uh, we can't uh, really afford. Would you be willing to give uh, 50 licenses to us uh, to support our journey as medical students? And I think they may actually consider giving it to you for free. Wow. Yeah, I'll consider that. <laughs> I would also like to bring up this concept of perfectionism in mindfulness because when I first started out, I wanted to meditate every day and clock in that 15 minutes. And on the days I don't, for some reason I'm tired or whatever, I feel that I, I don't know, I disappointed myself and I start being a perfectionist about it. When 
when I first started off, I wanted to defeat that perfectionism. That was the main reason why I even started mindfulness. So I found it very counterintuitive that I became more of a perfectionist in the first few weeks than try to fight it. So how would you deal with perfectionism in mindfulness? Well, first of all, you're probably a high achiever. So you have a mental habit of perfecting everything that you take on in life. One of the foundational attitudes of mindfulness is non-striving. Because so much of our striving gives or brings about so much mental suffering. Always wanting. Always wanting to be better. Always wanting more. And that doesn't bring happiness because we always feel dissatisfied. So mindfulness is having the state of mind of letting go of wanting and to feel that, gee, I have come a long way and I've achieved a lot. And I can actually sit here and feel a sense of pride. And meditating is training the mind to be content. It doesn't mean you stop studying. It means that you celebrate what you have managed to study. And the next moment when you get back into it, you're present with it. And you enjoy the moment of studying without this like, I'm studying because I want to get an A. You're studying because you love acquiring this knowledge and you're passionate about it. Then there's little or no effort required. Speaking of this, I want to understand a lot of time mindfulness is a habit that builds it's a habit that you build up across time right being more intentional having control over your inner state of mind but in real time when you are experiencing intense emotions of anxiety grief or disappointment what tools do you recommend whether you're a medical student or you really graduate as a doctor um there is a level of anxiety because uh generally people are afraid of making mistakes, of not uh, performing a certain level. And this is a sense of threat. So one phrase that's very powerful when we do uh, a mindfulness practice is to be able to take a deep breath and say, may I be well and safe. May I be at ease and happy. And that changes the chemistry in the brain because the threat is released and you're able to focus on the positivity and to basically tell the mind that, hey, you're okay, right? By saying, may I be well and safe? May I be peaceful? And that's when your adrenaline uh, no longer pumps as much because there is no more reactivity in the amygdala that causes your hypothalamus to send a message to the adrenal glands to pump. So, uh, so this is the, uh, the antidote to fear because your anxiety is actually uh, fear fear activated. Mm. What would you say to a person who is struggling to make this a habit? This is like if your body is telling you you need to go to the toilet, do you try to go to the toilet or you just go to the toilet? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you want to learn how to play a piano well, do you try to practice or you just practice? If you need to study for an exam, do you try to study or you just study? So same with the mindfulness practice. Just do it. I wanted to end the interview with this simple question. Something actionable for our audience, right? So what is one book, video or quote you've read or watched related to what we talked about mindfulness uh, that you would recommend to anyone? The one quote is by John Kabat-Zinn. As long as you can breathe, there's more right than wrong. Wow. Thank you so much, Angie. 